0: We're going to look at John chapter 20 in just a few minutes, but I want to start off by, by offering a, uh, an observation, which simply is this. You can learn a lot by a person by how they win. Uh, it's often been said, you know, you can learn a lot about a person by how they lose. That may be true, too, but I think actually there's more to be learned uh, when you observe someone who is victorious. I was, found a website this week that I found fascinating. It's called the Champion's Website, and apparently you can go to this website and you can learn how to be a champion. It didn't say anything about having any athletic ability. So I feel pretty good about my opportunity to, uh, to be a champion. But on this website, they had uh, a page that was called the traits of a poor winner. And I want to share some of this with you because I, I think it's very, uh, it's very intriguing. Uh, the author writes this, a poor winner is a person who will win a competition or will make a good play in a game and then ridicule or taunt the opponents. Now that caught my attention right off the bat because He seems to be saying that that's a negative thing, and I never quite understood that to be negative, Um, But so I read on because I wanted to learn more. Sometimes this person will strut around and gloat at how much better he is than the other person. Other examples often include laughing at the other player when he misses a shot or makes a mistake and telling the opponent he stinks after beating him. You may see this type of action in many professional sports. Wow, that's a, there's a revelation right there that I had never considered before. Sometimes the taunting is done during a game to try and get an opponent completely to lose control of his playing while behind in the game. After the victory, taunting or ridiculing the opponent is done simply to rub salt in the wound as well as verify the winner's superiority. And now here's a very interesting sentence. Men are usually guilty at being poor winners more often than women. I don't know if that's true in your household or not, my wife is about as competitive as me, and we're probably both really bad winners. Last night, she beat me in gin rummy and did a little dance around our dining room table. <laughs> Consequences of being a poor winner: One result of being a poor winner is that other people will not want to play with you, <laughs> nor will they like you. They may. This may be a factor. This may not be a factor of professional or organized sports, but when it can be upsetting, in, but it can be upsetting in casual competition with friends, friends or acquaintances. On the other hand, if you have character in your victories, others will want to play with you again and see if they can challenge you. Although the superior player who is a poor winner may still beat opponents that will play with him, in general, others will not care to associate with such a person whom they consider, and I quote, a jerk. <laughs> you can tell a lot about a person by the way they win. This morning is the, is to the day, it's the morning where we celebrate the victory of Jesus. Uh, if you haven't been around a church very much, or you're not uh, very familiar with Christianity or, or being a disciple of Jesus, this is our big day. This is the day where we are validated in our faith because Christ defeated death and hell for us. It's the day where we celebrate his, his final victory over our sin. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he claimed to go to his death as the savior of mankind. He claimed that that experience allowed people like you and me to find forgiveness for our sins in the presence of a holy and a righteous God. It's where we can enter into a relationship with God that will last for all of eternity, that isn't just for this life, but is for the life to come. It's what allows us to say, death is not the end of the story. And so today, we are dancing in victory. What is intriguing to me, and a question that I want to explore with you this morning, is How did Jesus respond to his victory? After all, when you look at Jesus' resurrection, you look at his death and his resurrection, if you read the Gospels carefully, there are several occasions in the Gospels where Jesus says to everybody before any of this takes place, hey, disciples, pay attention. Listen, get this. I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the grave. His disciples never got that. The people around him, the men and the women that followed him never picked up on that before his death. And so here's Jesus in victory, now going to re-engage as the King of kings and the Lord of lords with those who didn't believe, with those who doubted. What is his response going to be to those who didn't believe, to those who were were slow to understand? Uh, What is this heart of a king that we can look at this morning? What can we see into the character of Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this is a vitally important question for us. We're not talking about a game of pickup basketball. We're not talking about a high school athletic event. We're not even talking about the Super Bowl or the World Series. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about life and death. And so Jesus, as the King victorious, needs to be understood because he could either be vindictive or he could be gracious. He could either be vengeful or he could be compassionate. And how Jesus reacts in victory has a great importance to you and to me this morning. So with that in mind, I'm going to look at John chapter 20. we We're going to read verses 11 through 18. Let me set this up for you because where we pick it up is kind of halfway through the story. Mary Magdalene, who's one of the, one of the followers of Jesus, she would consider herself a, a disciple of Jesus, uh, has gone to the grave uh, she's gone there uh, under the auspice of wanting to make sure that the body has been entombed correctly uh, and she's in great sorrow and a great pain and a great suffering. She gets to the tomb only to discover that the body is gone. She runs back and tells the disciples and John and Peter jump up and they run to the tomb and they also make the discovery that Jesus's body isn't there and then they go back home and Mary is left at the tomb with great question marks in her mind a great sorrow and great pain. And great suffering. And that's where we pick up uh, this account in the life of our Lord Jesus. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, hear the word of God. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, "Rabbani," which, in, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To Him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come face to face with the risen King. The one who was just days before taunted and ridiculed, spit upon, beaten, and crucified, all for our sake, now stands victorious over his enemies, over sin over death, and over eternal hell. So, Fathers, we delve into the heart of King Jesus. As we study the word which you have provided for your people, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us insight and understanding. Father, I pray that my sin would not stand in the way of what you want to say, that my inability to choose the right words would not hinder from everyone in this room hearing your message. Father, we need your truth. Not something that we make up or something that's convenient to us, but we need to know the words of life. And only you hold those words. So Father, whether we're here this morning as a disciple or as a skeptic, we all have the same thing in common. And that is to know Jesus. So Father, I pray that you would do that work that only you can do through your word and your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are really only two characters in, in this particular event in the life of Jesus. The, the angels are almost, uh, they're not even really co-stars. They, they, they kind of just make a quick appearance and then they're gone. And I'm not going to spend any time with the angels. I want to look at Mary and I want to look at the heart of Jesus. Because I think uh, in this particular event in the life of our Lord, Mary really is a picture of sinful and broken and hurting mankind. I think in this particular uh, encounter, she really represents you and me. Uh, in a very significant way. And I think it's important for us to be able to see that and connect with Mary in order for us to see how Jesus speaks into her life. Because the way in which Jesus speaks to Mary in this situation, I believe, represents how God interacts with his people and therefore will give us uh, insight into how God interacts with us. So first of all, uh, let's look at Mary. In verse 11, it, it says this, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Here we meet uh, one of Jesus' followers, somebody who loved Him dearly, uh, who had given a good portion of the last three years of our life to, to following Him, to knowing Him, to, to being in a, in a discipleship-type relationship with Him, and yet she doesn't yet understand the fullness of what He promised, and she simply sees that one of her, her best friends and her mentor and her Lord is now departed. She is experiencing the pain, the full grief of loss the full grief of death. When it says there that she stood weeping outside the tomb, it doesn't mean that she was a little misty-eyed. It doesn't mean that, that a little tear trickled down her cheek as she sought to compose herself. It meant that she literally had broken down and was sobbing in utter agony and pain. When we first see Mary, she is beside herself with grief. Grief does that to you, doesn't it? If you've ever had that experience where you've lost a loved one, perhaps a close friend, maybe even tragically uh, a child, and, and that moment of grief maybe uh, at the immediate event will, will, will be just so oppressive on you that you almost uh, can't stand it, and other times it will come in waves, it will surprise you, you think maybe you're doing a little bit better, you've kind of gotten a hold of your emotions, and then it comes over you again. I was having coffee with a friend of mine this week who uh, about two months ago lost someone that was like a son to him. Uh, And this was the first time he had experienced in his life that kind of pain. And he was surprised that it was two months later and he kept saying, I think I ought to be past this. I think I ought to be doing a little bit better, but it just hurts so bad. And I tried to reassure him that what he was going through was very common and that for for maybe even months and years to come, that kind of grief uh, may just weigh him down to the point where there are times where he just breaks down because that's how painful grief can be. But Mary is not just suffering from grief. She's also struggling with her faith. Look at verses 12 and 13. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, call me kind of silly, but I think if you encounter a couple of angels... (laughs) That that ought to grab your attention. (laughs) That ought to be something where you go, wow, there's something special going on here. There's something significant happening right now, and I need to be aware of this because you don't see angels every day. It seems to me that maybe in this moment, Mary could have said, you know what? There are angels here, and that reminds me of something Jesus said about a resurrection, and, and maybe there's hope. But Mary is so lost in her grief. She's so emotionally broken that that her faith has ebbed to a low point where she's standing in the presence of heavenly angels and she doesn't even recognize what's going on around her. She has forgotten the promise of Jesus because the pain of separation and loss has caused her to be blind to what's actually happening. But doesn't that describe the pain in this world? (laughs) Any of you that have gone through this kind of experience know about that which I speak you cannot be comforted. No simple words, maybe not even an appearance from an angel in heaven can can assuage the pain that is in your heart, the deep sense of loss and utter despair that are yours at that darkest of moments. And so Mary is weeping because her faith is a very low point. She doesn't even recognize angels. But then even beyond that, Her senses are so completely dulled by sorrow that she doesn't even recognize the Lord Jesus himself. Look at verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. I find that very interesting, that that Mary is standing in the presence of Jesus, one that she had followed. so long. And and there are theologians that debate this and say, well, his his resurrected body was such that that she wouldn't necessarily have recognized him. And I simply don't buy that. I believe that Jesus, even in his resurrected state, was recognizable. But I think this speaks to the humanity of Mary. Because even when Jesus talks to her, engages her in a conversation, she still is uh, slow to see it. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him that I will take him away. Mary's in a bad spot, both emotionally and spiritually. She's overwhelmed with heartache to the point that she can't recognize the redemption that's happening right before her eyes. And I don't say that to be harsh on Mary because I think, again, Mary is a wonderful representative even in a very sad way. And the condition of broken and hurting mankind. A lot of you know that C.S. Lewis is, is a favorite author of mine, uh, and he wrote a book called *The Problem of Pain*. And I don't necessarily recommend this book to you unless you're you're pretty stout of heart. Uh, but he wrote it uh, in the aftermath of losing his wife, and he wrestles with the question of human pain. Uh, and if you if you like to think through things in a in a pretty significant way, then, then you may want to pick this book up, but it, it is a challenge. I find it incredibly challenging, but, but there are places where I see uh, Lewis grasp the human condition uh, like no one else. And I want to just read for you a brief paragraph as he talks about this question of pain. He says, When I think of pain, of anxiety that gnaws like fire, and loneliness that spreads out like a desert, and the heartbreaking routine of monotonous misery, or again of dull aches that blacken our whole landscape, or sudden nauseating pain that knocks a man's heart out at one blow, or pain that pains that seem already intolerable and then are suddenly increased, of infuriating scorpion stinging pains that startle into maniacal movement a man who seemed half dead with his previous tortures. It quite consumes my spirit. If I knew any way of escape, I would crawl through sewers to find it. Friends, that's a very real pain and that's a very real human condition. And there are many in this room that understand Mary's pain and Mary's struggle. But Mary's only one character in the story grief-filled, weeping, doubting, uh, senses-dulled Mary comes into contact with the risen King, with the glorious Jesus, with the one who is now victorious. And I want us to turn our attention just a bit to ask the question, how is Jesus in victory? And the first thing I want us to do uh, is look at verse 15 and see that Jesus understands Mary's pain. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus doesn't launch into Mary. I can't believe it that you didn't believe me. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't doesn't question her for her lack of faith. He doesn't chide her for not recognizing his, his truth for what it was and understanding that he was going to rise victorious. He simply engages her right where she is in her moment of brokenness. This king has a heart that understands pain. And understands sorrow. In fact, if you go back and you read the prophet Isaiah as he pointed towards the coming of Jesus, as he pointed towards the Messiah, he identified him as a man of sorrows, one who is acquainted with grief. You see, sometimes I think in my pain or in my sin and my struggle that God can't relate to me and there could be nothing further from the truth. God understands my pain better than I understand it myself. And God knew what Mary was going through And so Jesus simply inquires of her without condemnation. What a great question. Woman, who are you seeking? Woman, why are you weeping? If you're brokenhearted and and people around you maybe don't know that, isn't it comforting when someone comes up and says, "Why? why are you weeping? You know who says this most? If you stop and think about it in our culture, who says this most? A mom or a dad when the child runs in from outside, right? The little one who's five or six years old and they're just bawling their eyes out. What's the first thing mom and dad do when they pick them up and hold them? Son, daughter, why are you crying? What's wrong? What's implied in that question? How can I help you? How can I care for you? This king is not one who is quick to chide, but one who is quick to be compassionate. But he also offers Mary The truth. Look at verse 16. It says, Woman, uh, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, uh, she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. One word, her name. I've been thinking all week about how Jesus said this, because there's probably a couple different ways he could have said it. You know, he could have said it with his hands on his hips, you know, Mary. Like, why didn't you get it, Mary? I've been telling you all along, you know, I expect the guys to be slow, but the women are supposed to be a little bit quicker. Come on, Mary, how come you didn't kind of keep up with this one? He could have said it to her with his arms folded in a little bit of disgust. Mary, where were you when I needed you? How, come you? how come you didn't trust me? How come you didn't hang in there with me? I thought at least I could have counted on you. But I don't believe Jesus said it that way at all. I believe that Jesus said her name just like he says, your name, and my name with hands outstretched. Mary, the gentlest and the most intimate of terms. When somebody says your name to you, you kind of know where you stand with them by what? By the tone, right? If I'm in my house and I hear, Tom, (laughs) I know there's something up. (laughs) And I know I might want to run to the golf course real quick and stay away for about four hours, right? Okay. If I hear Thomas Harold Ricks, I know that I really want to go outside and do something else because I've got a serious problem on my hand. But at the same time, I hear, Tom, oh, maybe something's wrong and Cindy needs my help. Where are you? What can I do? What's up? might just be something as simple as, hey, come help me with the groceries. It might be, go beat one of those kids because they're really acting up and I'm always happy to, to, to join in and do that. It's just we don't beat our children. We used to. We quit. No but it's something about the way a person says your name that that gives you a clue right off the bat about the circumstances, about how they're doing. And I believe that when Jesus simply said Mary, the blinders were able to fall off and she was able to see him for who he was. This king not only understood her pain, but as we look into his heart, we see that he gently but directly confronts her doubt. And that's so important for us. We need Jesus to tell us the truth. I don't need Jesus to tell me what I want to hear. I don't need Jesus to be my lackey. I need Jesus to be my Lord. And by calling her by name, he acknowledges her pain, but he also says to her, Mary, I'm alive. Mary, I'm going to say it gently, but you know what? You did miss it, and I'm here. And now we can move forward. We can move forward in the truth. But friends, understand that this one who is a king, he will be gentle, he will be compassionate, he will be kind, but he will always tell you the truth if you're willing to stop and listen. This king gently confronts her doubt. And then in verse 17, he does a couple of other things. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. There's a lot of debate about what that means. Obviously, Mary has probably fallen to her feet and maybe is clasping Jesus uh, by his feet and and is bowing down and worshiping him. Uh, And I'm not gonna go into detail about what all that means because I think the conversation is actually the more important issue. He says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. The first thing Jesus does in verse 17 is, as the victorious king is he reestablishes the partnership that he has with Mary. He gives Mary an assignment. He says to Mary, I want you to go and I want you to say. And so Jesus calls Mary and in a sense, he's saying to Mary, you know what? What's happened is all in the past. And I know you doubted and I know you were heartbroken. And I know you didn't see the big picture and I know you missed it, but now we're Okay. From the resurrection forward, we're gonna be partners again in this great kingdom building adventure that we're going to share together. So the first thing I need you to do is lovingly go find those knucklehead disciples of mine and tell them that it's all okay. They're hurting just as bad as you and they need to know the truth. And Jesus invites her in to a partnership. This king does not hold grudges. This king is not vindictive towards his followers, but he invites them To be part of the journey. But he also introduces to Mary a very important truth that we need to see this morning. Go to my brothers. I don't know if I could be that gracious (laughs) with the disciples. You know, Peter said, Lord, if everybody else leaves, I'll stay. I'll, I'll die with you if I have to. And what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. All the disciples ran away. All the disciples left Jesus defenseless, so it were when his accusers came and attacked him and took him into custody. No one stood by Jesus. I don't know that even a couple days later I could say, I'm going to now call them brothers. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, all is forgiven, all has been made right. My resurrection solidifies the price I paid on the cross, and you're now part of the family. You're brothers, your sisters, because why? Because I'm going to my father and your father. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about his father. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus expands that to others. And he says, he's now your father because I've paid the price for you on the cross. You are now part of the family. And he introduces this wonderful theology of adoption that says, we're not servants of this King. But this king brings us literally into his family and offers us all the glorious riches that are to be found there. When you look at how a person handles those who have disappointed them, you learn an awful lot about that person. And those folks all let Jesus down, and yet he was gracious. I found a story on the internet about a week ago. This is going to become one of my all time favorite stories. But it addresses this kind of situation where somebody let another person down and how that person who was let down reacted. I'm just going to read it for you. It will speak for itself. It's from Reuters, uh, March 14th, uh, out of London. Uh, it is the one moment every man wants to get right and the one that floor fitter Left Coast Haji could hardly have gotten more wrong. The luckless 28-year-old's dreams of giving his sweetheart Leanne, 26, the ultimate, the ultimate proposal have literally vanished into thin air. Haji of Hackney, East London, had concealed a $12,000 engagement ring inside a helium balloon. You know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) The idea was that she would pop the balloon as he popped the question. But as he left the shop, a gust of wind pulled the balloon from his hand and he watched the ring and quite possibly the affections of his girlfriend sailing away over the rooftops. I couldn't believe it, he told the Sun newspaper. Now there's an understatement. (laughs) I just watched as it went further and further into the air. I felt like such a plonker. I don't know what plonker means in in British vernacular. I may have just said a really bad word. I don't know if I did or not. If you're from Britain and I have, I didn't mean to offend you. It cost a fortune. And here's the interesting part. I knew my girlfriend would kill me. He spent two hours in his car trying to chase and find the balloon without success. I thought I would give it to Leanne and a pin so that I could literally pop the question he said. But I had to tell her the story. Here's where it gets interesting. And she went absolutely mad. She is refusing to speak to me until I get her a new ring. He is hoping the ring will turn up. It would be amazing if someone found it, which doesn't say much about his ability to understand whether he's loved or not by another person or just in it for the ring. But as I, as I read that story, I thought, well, how about, how about that? You know, Haji, I think you actually got a gift in that you found out how much you were worth to your girlfriend. Just a little bit less than $12,000. You've maybe been spared from some pain because she looked at the circumstances and instead of saying, oh my gosh, how much does this guy love me? And how creative is he? And, and, and be humbled by the fact that somebody would go to those lengths to, to try and embrace her in a wonderful way. All she could think about was the loss of something she could wear on her finger. You learn a lot about a person in the way they treat someone who has potentially offended them or harmed them. And King Jesus came to save. He came to offer gracious salvation, and he now institutes his reign, beginning with Mary, in the kindest and the gentlest of terms. This is the heart of our king. As you come to him this morning as you interact with this king, I think there are a couple of important things that you need to know and that I need to know. And first of all, I want to talk to those of us who, who claim to be disciples of Jesus. And I think for us, I want to remind you, and it's a reminder because you've heard this before. You've heard it from this stage before, and you've read it in the scriptures, and you've, heard it, uh, you've learned it for yourself. But you, we need to be reminded that our Lord calls us brother. He calls us sister. He he understands our frailty. He has been part of humanity. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to be attacked by temptation. He knows what it's like to be brokenhearted over death and sin. But his love for us is unconditional, and his care for us is eternal, and we should press on with the assurance of knowing that we belong to such a king as this. Charles Spurgeon told a story back in the uh, 1900s, or in the the 19th century, the 1800s, about a man who had dual citizenship in the United States and in Great Britain. And he was arrested in Spain and tried for a a capital offense crime, which he did not commit. He was innocent. And he called upon the embassies to come to his aid, and they came and pleaded with the Spanish magistrates and said, this man's innocent, you don't have the proof, and and we want you to to let him go. And the Spanish uh, authorities said, no, we're going to put him to death. So the day of his execution arrived and both the uh, American ambassador and the the British ambassador showed up. They were allowed to go into his jail cell to see him one last time. The executioner stood there along with the the group of of, uh, policemen that were going to lead him uh, to his execution and they opened up their coats and the uh, ambassador from Great Britain took out the Union Jack and he draped it over this man's shoulders. And the ambassador from the United States opened up his coat and he took out the stars and stripes and he laid it over this man's shoulders. And then they turned and they looked at the man who was in charge of the prison. They said, understand this. If you kill him, you declare war on our countries. Friends, that's a, that's a poor picture of how much Jesus identifies with his disciples. You are wearing the righteous robes of Jesus. Jesus. Disappointment, anger, bitterness does not enter into that equation. Your savior loves you. He gave himself for you. Your king died so that you could have life and we need to remember that we're called brother we're called sister. But I think also as disciples, we need to remember that we are called to represent him well. We're called to make an impact on the world around us in a way that when people see us, they see that same graciousness. When, when we call people's names, they hear the same tone that Jesus used with Mary. And I think sometimes we're woefully inadequate for that task because we live for ourselves instead of for our King. My, uh, I got a group of guys I have a Bible study with on Wednesday morning and... Uh, for the first part of the, the year, I put him through this really painful four or five weeks where we studied the theology of grace, and I gave him a whole bunch of boring uh, seminary articles to read, and, and we really dug in deep to understand the theology of grace, because once we got done with that, the next question was, how does grace impact your life? If you really do understand grace, if you really do get what God has given you, then how does it it come out of your pores? How is it part of how you live? And we've talked about everything across the board. and just about every different example we've brought up, we found a way that we failed. We found a way that we've fallen short. Friends, the world needs to not only see Jesus on the pages of Scripture, but they need to see him in your life and in my life. The heart of King Jesus needs to be my heart, and it needs to be your heart as disciples. How are we doing at representing him? But before we close, I would be remiss if I didn't address those of you this morning that may consider yourselves skeptical or may consider yourselves unbelievers. You need to understand that this King Jesus is patient beyond all that we could ever imagine, but his patience has a purpose. I want to read for you just a couple of verses out of 2 Peter 3. I'm not going to put them on the screen, but just listen to this. Peter is talking to folks about the second coming of Jesus, and he says this, "...but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise," that promise of of returning. "...the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." but the day of the Lord will come. Jesus is not patient with you for no reason. His patience is in order that you might experience forgiveness of sins, that you might repent of your rebellion, that you might turn from following your own path and attach yourself to him and become his disciple. His patience is so that you can recognize your sin and say, I'm lost, but I'm saved because of what Jesus has done. He stood in my place and I accept that for myself. God's patience has a purpose. Have you come to repentance? Today, you're standing next to the empty tomb of Jesus. You're standing there alongside Mary, just as millions and millions, probably billions of people are all over the world today as they come into rooms like this and participate in what we call a worship service. Don't leave here without coming to grips that this king's heart is for you, but it's for you to put your faith in him. Will you pray with me?